Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about us by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Drive through any mid-sized town in the U.S. today, and you'll likely see lots of different kinds of churches. There are Catholic ones and Lutheran ones, Episcopalian churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, and depending on where you live, maybe even Greek or Russian Orthodox churches, too. Most of us don't dwell on these distinctions in our day-to-day lives, in part because we recognize that Christianity comes in many different forms, especially in this country. But while it's true that we're pretty savvy at recognizing diversity within Christianity, it's also all too often the case that we don't recognize that kind of diversity within other religious traditions. Many textbooks, for example, boil down Islam to the Prophet Muhammad and the five pillars, as if those alone can describe the beliefs and practices of the world's one and a half to two billion Muslims. News reports that whittle down religious conflict in the Middle East really don't help much either, and too often leave us with the impression that either all Muslims believe the same things, or that the Islamic world is divided in this great religious war between Sunnis and Shias. Neither characterization is accurate or all that helpful. Well, in this episode, we'll provide you with a framework and some strategies for better understanding the diversity that exists within Islam, as well as how and why you should be talking about that diversity with your students. Welcome to Episode 6, The Diversity of Islam. Religions are never stagnant. They're always changing. One of the reasons why we find religious traditions are not monolithic is because people, believers, adherents of that tradition, have practiced it in so many different contexts, and those contexts have shaped their understanding. Meet Ali Asani, professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic religions and cultures at Harvard University. Professor Asani is an expert on how various Muslim communities around the world practice their faith in different ways. He emphasizes that the practice of Islam is extremely diverse, as is the practice of all other religions. So when it comes to a religion like Islam, we need to be asking, which interpretation of Islam is this? In which context did it emerge? What is its history? To what notions of authority is it appealing to? How has it changed over time? Before we go any further, let's pause for just a second, because we need to clear up two common misperceptions about Islam in the Middle East before we can continue. The first misconception is that the majority of the world's Muslims live in the Middle East. And that's just not true. Very often people associate Islam primarily with the Middle East. And I think there are several reasons for that. One is that it was the historical home uh, in which the tradition developed. But very rapidly during its historical development, Islam spread outside the Middle East. So today we have Muslims all over the world And the majority of the world's Muslims actually now live in South Asia, that's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, as well as in Southeast Asia, that's Indonesia and Malaysia. So it's definitely wrong to think about Islam just as uh, a religion of the Middle East. The second misconception is that Islam is the only religion in the Middle East, which is also false. It's also true to say that Islam, while it is present in the Middle East, it's not the only religion present. As we know, there are uh, various um, Christian groups 
of various denominations uh, that also call the Middle East their home, and not to mention, of course, various varieties of uh, the Jewish tradition also present in the Middle East. Fair enough. So why is it that we so closely link Islam in the Middle East in our minds? Well, there's several reasons. One obvious one is that understandings of Islam and knowledge about Islam is very limited. So they have uh, limited notions derived from just what they see in the media. And the media focuses just on the Middle East. Uh, And the focus on the Middle East is the result of, I think, on the one hand, education. On the other hand, perceptions that since Islam is an Arab religion, it developed in Arabia, uh, that therefore it's the most important religion in the Middle East. People don't understand that, in fact, it developed and spread outside the Middle East. Number two is I think that the Middle East, uh, in terms of its geographic location, was the area that was in closest contact with Europe as well as America. And these contacts became very crucial because when there were periods of empire building, both Muslim empires as well as European empires, and then later on even the American empire building, the Middle East became a contentious ground for economic resources, particularly oil. And that's one of the reasons that now most people associate Islam just with the Middle East. We want to make these points up front because we need to disavow students early on of these two common misunderstandings before they dive deeper into the study of the Middle East or Islam. Doing so will prevent them from making overly broad generalizations and help them better appreciate and understand the diversity that exists within the religion and the region. Recognizing this kind of diversity within Islam is also a key component of religious literacy, a 21st century concept and skill set that's at the heart of our conversation today. Religious literacy at a basic level means being literate about the nature of religion. Many people have very narrow notions concerning religion. They think about religion as something that's just connected with rites, rituals, and ceremonies. Or they think about religion as just connected with scriptures and sacred texts. But religion uh, is a much deeper notion than scriptures and rites, rituals, and ceremonies. Religion is actually a phenomena, a cultural phenomena, that is deeply embedded in political, economic, and social, literary, artistic context. So in a certain way, religion is something that's embedded in all dimensions of human experience. And because it's embedded in all these experiences, you're going to find diversity because people belonging to the same tradition, living in very different contexts, are going to come up with different interpretations of the tradition. And number two, you will find that as the context change, people's ideas of religion change, how they interpret religion, how they understand change. So a religiously literate person should be able to understand the evolving, the dynamic nature of religion as the context in which it is embedded in change. In other words, other aspects of our lives inform the way we interpret and practice our faiths, which helps explain why interpretations and practices of religion are diverse and why they change over time. Confused? Well, let's take a quick look at a familiar example, one pulled from the pages of U.S. history. One example I can give is from American history. 
in the early 20th century. In the American South, you had a certain group of people who interpreted the Bible to justify racism. They came from a certain racial background, political background, economic background. And they were reacting against what they perceived was a threat to their lifestyle. So they read meaning into the Bible to justify white supremacy. In the same environment, you had another group, another racial background, different socioeconomic history, reading the Bible as a text for hope and salvation. And these are African-Americans fighting for civil rights. So that's an example of how contexts influence interpretations of religion. Got it. Same scriptures and faith, very different interpretations and applications. But what about Islam? How do we see this playing out in predominantly Muslim societies? When it comes to interpretations of Islam, one way that one can think about the development of Islam, and I think for that matter any other religious tradition, is that on the one hand there are ideological constructions of, of a tradition that are created by elites, religious elites, political elites, that are very often connected with expressions of power and notions of orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and so on, who belongs, who doesn't belong, and what we would call institutionalized forms of religion. And certainly in Islam, we have those expressions, like we'll have Shia and Sunni and so on, and these are all embedded in the historical development of the tradition and they develop their own distinctive sets of institutions. And you have immense variety in there. So if you talk even, you take any one of these, you take about Sunni, there are so many different groups among the Sunni. At a basic level, we can talk about the four schools of law in Sunni Islam, the Maliki, the Shafi, the Hanbali, the Hanafi. Uh, amongst the Shia, there are again many, many different groups. So even among these ideological constructions, you have an immense variety. And the one of the reasons, again, for the emergence of these various interpretations is, of course, the interaction between history, politics, and economics. Again, context is key, and it helps explain the existence of different ideologies within Islam. But we can't focus solely on diversity of ideology. We also need to pay attention to diversity of practice. On the other hand, you also have a huge variety of interpretations of Islam that are connected with the practice. And these interpretations are really what I would say belong to the majority of the, of the population. These are not elites. These are how ordinary people understand and practice their religion. And for them, religion is about their relationship with the transcendent, with God. They're really not interested in religion as a political affair or as an ideology they want to impose on other people. It's just personal between them and God. And very often that religion, that expression of religion as faith, which we've tended to ignore, uh, in our studies of Islam, and this is one of the reasons that uh, Muhammad Arkun, a French uh, academic, also f uh, a 
philosopher who studied Islam called the silent Islam because this is the Islam, the Islam of the believers that's been rendered silent in political, social, and media spaces. For non-Muslims, it's generally easier to identify distinctions of ideology within Islam. But how can we better understand the diversity of the Islam of faith, especially if this Islam is quote-unquote silent? This Islam of faith, interestingly, is embedded in the arts. Various arts, sound arts, visual arts, literary arts. And as in any other religious tradition, most people experience their faith through some sort of an artistic medium. So the arts actually become a very important form of transmitting knowledge, but they are themselves a form of knowledge in themselves. Uh, it's different from discursive knowledge. One could call it emotive knowledge because they appeal holistically to the entire person. And in these kinds of situations, Islam becomes a multi-sensory experience. So Islam goes beyond the ideological, the theological, the discourses about control, power, and it becomes an aesthetic experience. And this is the way in which most Muslims actually experience their faith. To give you a better sense of how the arts are connected to the practice of Islam, we're going to walk you through two quick illustrative examples, the arts of Quranic recitation and calligraphy. In Islam, I think compared to many other traditions, the art has come to play a very central role uh, because of the Quran. Most people think of the Quran as actually a book, that a scripture that you read. But when the Quran was first revealed in the seventh century to the Prophet Muhammad, it was not a book. He would receive these inspirations and then he would recite. And the word Quran means recitations. And so he would recite these, these texts and people would hear these texts and they were so beautiful aesthetically that people were really sort of struck by their beauty. And some people started accusing him of being a magician or a sorcerer. Or some people uh, accused him of being a poet who was possessed by jinns because what he was saying was so magical. So aside from the content of what he was saying, how it was being recited became very important. And soon they, they developed this, this idea that the aesthetics of the text was, in fact, a sign of its divine origin. In Arab culture at the time, the poetic arts were highly prized. Poets were very important figures in society, uh, people who were held in great respect, but also people who were feared because they were, they were seen as connected with jinns. So when Muhammad was accused of being a poet, he said, no, I'm not a poet. And this message that comes to me is not from a jinn. It comes from God. And the challenge to him was put to him, well, prove it, that this actually comes from God. And there's a, there's a, verse in the Quran that challenges those who doubt its divine origin by saying, you create something as beautiful as this. So within the Islamic tradition, 
this idea of the aesthetics of the text as being a sign of its sacredness lies at really at the heart of the Quran. And what about the art of recitation today? Of course, the Quran does become codified after the death of the Prophet into a book. Interestingly, the project of putting it into a book was started by the state, and the written book becomes the pretext for the state. And this is where you get the institutionalized and the ideological notions emerging. But most Muslims actually continue to experience the Quran through the oral form down to today. So for many Muslims, their experience of God is determined by their experience of the Quran, what they feel when they hear the Quran. There are people who cry, who weep, uh, who find that the recitation really moving. There are professional reciters of the Quran who are trained. There are many different styles of reciting the Quran. So the Quran becomes the center of, I would say, an Islamic soundscape that connects the sound arts, that is like Quran recitation, with poetry, but also with, with music. And of course, the connection with music itself, for some people, is controversial from an ideological perspective, but you find at a popular level, the music is, is an intrinsic part of the religious experience. For copyright reasons, we're not able to provide an example of Quranic recitation here in this podcast. But you can easily find them on YouTube and elsewhere online, and we've actually provided a link to one of them on the Primary Source website. Be sure to check it out so you get a better sense of what this art form entails. For now, though, let's turn to our second example, the art of calligraphy. When the Quran got written down in the form of a book, the idea was that, of course, it had to be written in the most beautiful manner possible. So there developed the art of calligraphy, writing the word of God, that which is sacred, in a visually appealing way. So just as you have the aesthetics of the recitation, you have the aesthetics of the writing. Because calligraphy literally means beautiful writing. But the aesthetics of the writing had, in fact, other very interesting connotations. So for example, all the letters of the alphabet based on an ancient Near Eastern system were connected with numbers. And so you get into the art of numerology. And once you get into the art of numerology, you find that people read deeper significance into some of the letters of the alphabet connected to numbers, and then those numbers were given mystical meanings. So you develop a kind of a code of hidden meanings behind text. You also have calligraphy appearing on all kinds of objects, ranging from the walls of a mosque uh, to ceramics to objects like mosque lamps and so on. And the idea of the calligraphy there is that it's not only just part of the aesthetics to enhance the beauty of the object, but it, it inscribes the object with sacred meaning, especially when there's a Quranic verse on there so that when somebody looks at something, they're immediately reminded that what they're looking at, which is something beautiful, is actually a symbol of a larger divine beauty.
Okay, so Islam, like Christianity and all other religions, is diverse, not only in terms of ideology, but also of practice. But how do you teach this point? How do you help students understand that Islam is diverse and help them see where that diversity comes from? To shed some light on this, we turn to Rachel Audie, a history teacher at Cambridge Ringe and Latin School, which is a public high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just down the road from Harvard. Rachel teaches a core world history course and an upper-class, elective modern world history course where she spends a lot of time talking about the contemporary Middle East. For the past couple of years, she's also been working to help her students develop their religious literacy skills so they can better understand the roles that religion can play in Middle Eastern and other societies. Religious literacy, as I understand it, and I learned this from the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard University, it involves three tenets. One, that religions are internally diverse. Two, that religions need to be understood as situated within contexts, cultural contexts. And three, that religions are dynamic and they change over time. All right, let's stop there for just a second because I know what at least some of you out there are thinking. Can she do this? Can she teach about religion in a public school? The answer is... Yeah, she can. So I can teach religion in a public school because we are not teaching the devotional aspects of religion. We're teaching religion as an academic study. So we're teaching the study of religion, not the practice of religion. And that's an important distinction. In teaching religion in public schools, teachers are not teaching students to make judgments about religion. Um, about the merits of certain religions over others. Um, We're not promoting the acceptance of religion, but rather kind of wrestling with the role that religion has played historically. Rachel also adds that she herself is not Muslim, and that that's okay. I think it's a mistake to assume that only religious practitioners can teach about religion, and I think that's a part of this notion that when we're teaching about religion in public schools, it's an academic study, not a devotional study. That said, I think initially when teaching, especially about teaching Islam, a tradition that I'm not personally familiar with in terms of devotional practice, I was a little nervous about doing it. I think especially with students who might be Muslim in my class because I didn't, I didn't want to offend anybody. And then in studying it more academically, I gained more confidence um, because, again, what I was communicating to students is not that I'm here to teach people about the devotional practices of a particular religion or to judge a religion or to um, make them accept anything, but rather my goal is to, to teach them about the role of religion in cultural context. I don't teach prayer. I don't teach religious texts. We don't visit religious sites or places of worship. I typically don't have religious leaders come in and talk to students. We do have people come in to talk about religion. It would be an academic, somebody who studies religion. Rachel fronts her unit on the Middle East by talking about the diversity of ideology and practice within Islam to challenge stereotypes about the region and the religion, just as we talked about earlier in this episode. One of the things that I'm trying to do in the first week or so is to look at the diverse conceptions of Islam specifically. And so in some ways I'm anticipating all of the things that they hear in uh, either media or society that 
you know, they're programmed to think is problematic, whether we're talking about the treatment of women or the use of violence by certain groups who are Muslim. By talking about the diverse conceptions of Islam early on, I'm hoping to disavow them of these notions. So how exactly does she do it? After introducing religious literacy to students and after introducing this notion of diverse conceptions within religions and specifically Islam, I have students look at different case studies. Um, What students do is they look at um, a reading about climate change, gender, peace, and conflict. And each one of these case studies is about this particular topic within the context of religion. So for example, one of the readings is about environmentalism and climate change in Indonesia. And it looks at the role that Muslim leaders play in promoting environmentalism. And the interaction between religious leaders within Indonesia and the state. And what it showcases to students is the embeddedness idea. So what I have them do is kind of trace the tenets of religious literacy within the case studies. So where do students see evidence in this case study that religions are internally diverse? Where do students see evidence that religion is situated within culture? Where do students see that religions evolve and change? And so each one of the readings showcases the religious literacy tenets. And so students, after learning about the tenets, then need to go into these case studies and pick those things out for themselves and then present them to their their classmates. Rachel's become a key advocate for teaching religious literacy in K-12 classrooms, and you can read more about her work in the articles she's written for Education Week and PBS. We've linked to both of these articles on the Primary Source website for you to check out later. But before we wrap up, we want to give you one more tip on teaching about the diversity of Islam, this one from Professor Asani. He suggests that when talking with your students about Islam, you also discuss whose Islam you're talking about. I would say that, again, when you talk about Islam, You know, it's not only important to say what kind of Islam are we talking about, but whose Islam? Because there's so many different voices. As we've already talked about, there are formulations of voices that are those of the elites, those in power, political power, religious power, the nation state, and so on and so forth. And they have certain formulations. But then there are, as I mentioned again, that they're voices of ordinary people and how they interpret Islam as uh, as a faith, as a religion. But within all these voices, it's very easy to forget the voices of the marginalized, the voiceless. And what I think religious literacy does is that it makes you aware that when you are exposed to one interpretation of Islam, you're aware that there are other interpretations of Islam that you're not hearing that you have not been exposed to. So when you start talking about who's Islam, in effect what we are talking about is thinking about a religious tradition as a spectrum of viewpoints. And you can get a whole range of voices from very conservative, 
to very progressive, which makes it therefore important for us to think of religious traditions as spectrums, a variety of voices. And if we want to study a religious tradition, we need to be aware of that spectrum. And if you obsess with just one end of the spectrum, we are rendering effectively everyone else in the spectrum voiceless. We hope that today's episode has given you the confidence and know-how you need to talk about Islam with your students in ways that go beyond the five pillars and even Sunnis versus Shias. Students need to know that there's a wide variety of interpretations and practices of Islam out there, just as there are huge variations in the interpretation and practice of Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and all other faiths. It's also essential that they understand why those variations exist and how they came about. This knowledge will give them a significant leg up in understanding the goings-on in the modern Middle East and help them recognize that Muslims around the world speak with many voices and represent many different perspectives. Thanks for joining us and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about today's episode in this podcast, as well as to find free resources for teaching the diversity of Islam and religious literacy, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. <laughs>